What you're about to hear is a very, very special episode of Classic Movies Live. Uh, This one is a little bit different than our normal episodes. This is actually something of a pilot for for what could be the start of a new series. This was done a little more off the cuff than usual, so... In future episodes of this series, this intro might be a little bit different, but just because we're still sort of figuring it out, we don't really know what this uh, what this new world we're living in is just yet. This is um, I hope you ex- you appreciate this sort of more raw form for everything, and uh, I hope you really like what we've got for you today. This episode starts with an explanation of the whole idea, so I'm not going to give away too much right now, except that there are soft spoilers in this movie, in this episode, for the movies we talk about, which we actually do try to, like, keep a secret right at first, but I'm just going to tell you right now. We're going to talk about Training Day, and we're going to talk about Monsters, Inc. Now, I'm going to give you a couple of, uh, just a few seconds to sort of think about why that might be the case, while I explain to you the concept of this episode. Here's, uh, here we go. Welcome back to a very special episode of Classic Movies Live. I I can't say for sure, but this might be the first and the last time that I refer to an episode of this specific format as an episode of Classic Movies Live. We haven't really decided yet, because today we have something very special that I'm going to introduce in just a moment. But first, I would like to welcome back to the show the person who's been on this show for every single episode. Pierre, how are you doing? Hello. I'm great. I'm excited to try out this new format. Did we say it already? Director we, versus director. director we didn't yet, now. but that's that's the idea. The first <clears throat> question I have for you, before I introduce this entire thing that I wrote out like an intro for and everything, first question I have for you, who is your favorite director? Not of the last 25 years, period. Just Who's your period. favorite director and why? Oh, geez, that's such a loaded question. Um, I would to be fair, say... I would have a very difficult time answering this question. Yeah, too. <laughs> um, I'm gonna think about that. I can't answer that right now. Okay, I guess off the top of my head, probably Christopher Nolan. I ask you that question, obviously anticipating the idea that you could say any number of people. But I did kind of think you were going to say Christopher Nolan. And that's specifically interesting because what we're going to talk about today, today is the first episode of a series that uh, is going to go on for a while called that, that we're calling right now Director Showdown. This is where we're going to take two, we're going to take films from two directors, pair them off against each other and pick a winner in a tournament bracket. The idea here is uh, actually based on a very funny image I saw. For the 25th anniversary of Rotten Tomatoes, the website Rotten Tomatoes gathered up 64 of the most notable directors whose debut films premiered after the founding of the site in 1998. And it put them into a bracket to let their readers determine once and for all who the best director of the last 25 years was. The results of that vote were publicized at the end of August 2023. And I will share a link to the Only article I can find about this in the show notes. Uh, But looking at the bracket, there were a lot of matchups which were definitely not matchups I would have anticipated. And there were a lot of winners who were pretty funny, especially like considering who they were matched up against. I would say there were some very unexpected winners. 
But when I was looking at that bracket a while back, back when it first dropped in August, I looked at that bracket and I was struck by the question of like, what do these matchups mean? Who, why, why pair this director against this other director? And, uh, you know, if you've done, I'm sure you've done this before, Pierre, but if any of our listeners have done like tournament seating before for any reason, the answer as to why each director was paired up is probably very obvious. That's just how the random number generator shook out. But like, is there a reason? Is is there some way that you could make these matchups make sense? So taking a look at those matchups again, I've put together a long series of episodes that's still in progress where we're going to pair up the same directors from that bracket. We're going to pair up their movies, uh, two thematically uh, similar movies, as much as we're able to, and go through them, talk about those movies, break them down, and at the very end, determine which of the directors did it best. We're going to determine a winner, and by the end, we will see if we come to the same conclusion as Rotten Tomatoes, or in fact, a slightly different conclusion. Part of my asking that question right at the beginning, who your favorite director is, was to see if you would land on Christopher Nolan, the winner of the Rotten Tomatoes showdown. So before wow. we even we before we even start this series, the winner, according to Rotten Tomatoes, is Christopher Nolan. Will we get to the same conclusion? There's enough content here that like we might not find out for a while, but I'm very excited to see this through to the end <laughs> and see who our final winner is. Sounds good. Exciting. And who is our first matchup, Jeff? The first matchup today is one that I'm very excited about. This worked out for a lot of different reasons. Today, the very first episode, the first director matchup, we're going to pair up Antoine Fuqua, director of movies such as The Guilty, Infinite, and of course, Training Day, with beloved Pixar director Pete Docter, the guy behind none other than Monsters, Inc. And the last two movies I mentioned there, Training Day and Monsters, Inc., those are the two movies we're going to talk about today. Now, the reason I think that this is so cool, like, we have a vague theme that I don't think we're going to... I don't think I'm going to say exactly what it is right away because I think it's kind of funny. So uh, we'll, we'll get to it. But uh, these movies have an awful lot in common, not just thematically, but even in terms of their releases. First off, these are, I'm reasonably certain, Pierre, you may have to correct me on this. I'm reasonably certain these are the debuts from both of these directors. Um, me, not okay, technically, you, no. Which, They're both which very, one? very early movies, though. Looks like Antoine Fuqua, Fuqua did had two movies before Training Day. And uh, Pete, I think that might be Pete Docter's first one. Let me check. Except, like, yeah, I guess Pete Docter had been involved in other Pixar movies. And that's his first. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. Was like his Pete Docter's first directed. So I take those back. that back. These are not both debuts, but they are both very early into their careers. And I would say, this isn't me saying, yeah, they're debuts, but... Pete Docter was very involved in Pixar at the time, even before this. So they were both pretty experienced by this point. So I won't say they're debuts. But also, both of these movies released in 2001. And both of them were up for Academy Awards at the whichever number Oscars were honoring 2001 movies. 74th. So uh, 
just to build up on the Academy Award success of these, Training Day actually did win an Oscar. It won Denzel Washington Best Support uh, Best Actor, which I believe was his second win for Best Actor. And it also got Ethan Hawke a nomination for Best Supporting Actor. And Monsters, Inc. went away empty-handed. It lost the very first ever Academy Award for Best Animated Feature to Shrek, which, to be fair, it lost to Shrek. So Yeah, so... That's actually really tough competition. I'm not gonna lie. I was I was literally thinking like, what movie from the early 2000s could have beat Monsters Inc. That's crazy. And then, and like, agree with it or not, Shrek is probably the only one that could have. Yeah, you're right. Moreover, ever since Training Day, uh, no judgment on Antoine Fuqua here. Every movie that he's released has been promoted as being from the director of Training Day. So this was a big moment in his career, as it was for Pete Docter, although for Pete Docter in probably slightly different ways. Training Day and Monsters, Inc. Uh, first question I have for you is, um, what did you think? Did you double feature these movies? What do you think of watching these movies right next to each other? I did not double feature them. I've seen That's Monsters, fair. Inc. A, a few times, so I actually didn't rewatch it. Uh, but then training day was my first it was my first time watching it and it is quite it is quite a unique experience I guess I can definitely I mean I'm not gonna lie I, I think when I first read about the movie I, I saw David Ayer's name and I was interested in him because obviously he made the infamous Suicide Squad and proceeded to I think in 2020 he officially like disowned the movie saying like this is not my movie at all and that he was basically forced to have his name in the credits even though he really did not enjoy it, it was not his movie in any way so I just I thought it would be interesting I don't I haven't seen another David Ayer movie so it was interesting to see a script that he made and from what I've seen of Training Day it seems like he could make a great script out of Suicide Squad if, if he was left to his own goods Potentially, we don't know. I want to clarify on that too, that while he did sort of disown the version of Suicide Squad that exists, David Ayer has also been very vocal, at least on social media, especially around 2020. He softened on it a bit, but he's been very vocal about the idea that there does in fact somewhere, or there could in fact exist a director's cut of Suicide Squad that he is much more proud of, that has not been released, but especially when the Snyder cut came out, he was like, can we get an Ayer cut? And like other people had said at first, but he wholeheartedly like put his entire endorsement behind that campaign. Now that will probably never happen, or at least there's no indication that it will. Not, not after like, how Justice League Snyder version also bombed, I think. Even though we it, don't know, but like technically, but I, I heard from various sources that it didn't seem to was do as well as people had hoped i guess on this it was a very expensive product and our project and it's hard to say i mean with those streaming numbers i'm i'm never convinced that a straight to streaming movie ever does well just because i don't know how the business would work although to be fair i don't know how the business would work so like yeah i you know if someone wanted to explain it to me and tell me why in fact the snyder cut was a massive success I could be convinced because I literally don't know the mechanics of that. 
yeah, I would, I would love, I would love to hear that as well. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that, that was my initial interest in it. Yeah. But then like, obviously the, the movie itself is directed by Antoine Fuqua, who, Fuqua, who seems, well, actually, I don't know them very well. I, I don't know him very well. He, I've seen maybe the Magnificent Seven, I think. Mm-hmm. But other than that, that's, I think that's it. And Magnificent Seven was not like a very recognizable movie. It felt like it was made by any hired gun director. So uh, I will point out that you have seen at least one other David Ayer movie because we have talked about one on the show. Uh, oh, for David of, Ayer, I've probably seen. Yeah, and End of Watch. Which one was that? I don't even remember. Uh, the that. one with Jake Gyllenhaal and Anna Kendrick. Oh geez, I I need to look it up. Jake Gyllen. Oh, um, he's the yeah. he's the cop, and Anna Kendrick's his wife, and yes. don't they have like a bad? I don't even remember, dude. That's I liked it though. It was really good. I remember yeah. it being one of like I remember that near the it was one uh, of the best Anna Kendrick movies. Yeah, although she was not in it that much, so <laughs> yeah, it wasn't like was... one of her best performances. It just was like consistently top of our list. Yeah, movies. Now that I think about it, though, this like, yeah, this script obviously is very reminiscent of Training Day because it's two cops over the course of a day. <laughs> like, and I think End Actually, of Watch also happens in a day too. It's, know, it's pretty close. Stuff. I think it's like maybe a week. It's not very long. Yeah. Okay. Um, and from other movies that I've seen from David Ayer. David Ayer really likes very gritty cop stories. Because, like, mm-hmm. he also directed a movie called Bright, which is extremely bad, but that's mostly because of the screenwriter, honestly. Yeah. I don't remember how the directing is in it. Uh, I wish David Ayer just wasn't attached to it because it's not good. He also did a couple of movies. He did a movie called The Tax Collector, which also not a highlight, but is about, like, day-to-day drugs, gangs, stuff like that. He's done, and it looks to me from looking at his filmography that that's kind of what he likes to write about. He writes a lot of things that are said in Los Angeles, writes a lot of things about police corruption, gangs. He wrote the very first movie in the Fast and the Furious franchise. So like... Oh, wow. Yeah. I did not know that. He likes being really close to the action and that action being LA police corruption. Yeah, which I guess that's the entire... The entire theme of the movie is, yeah, police corruption, dealing with, you know, entering something and or being a rookie and then realizing that the, the thing that you always dreamed of is way worse than you could ever imagine um, and not necessarily what you want. And I guess that kind of is very similar. It's, I, I mean, that's why we chose or you chose Monsters, Inc. is because I, I, well, I guess it's extremely similar, except in this case, it's the veteran who has it all realizes that what he's working for is, is not what it seems. Yeah. I thought that it was, uh, I thought that like it was, uh, I rewatched both of these movies and I started with training day and then went to monsters Inc. And it is a bit of whiplash. Cause like they're not, they're not for similar audiences. Really monsters Inc. <laughs> is definitely a family friendly movie where training day is the opposite of that. I would not consider that family friendly. Uh, but yeah, they both deal with systemic internal corruption. And I think it's really interesting to sort of examine where that corruption comes from in both of them. 
before we get drilled down a little more, I, I want to ask you first, uh, what did you think of training day? I thought it was really good. I liked it. But the more I think about it, the less I like it. If that makes sense. But, yeah. but why though? I'm interested. Why? Um, I, I think it's a lot of, I mean, maybe it's because I was reading a bit about it afterwards. I think it's and the ending. I think the ending doesn't really stick the landing because when I look back on it, it's like, what was the movie really saying the whole time, you know? Mm-hmm. And it feels like a movie that it's it's just telling, it's showing you too much of what it wants to say. And also, um, because it's just literally the whole movie, when I look back on it, it's like Denzel was basically talking, showing he was a bad cop the whole movie. And Ethan Hawke is just kind of like, whoa, what is that? And then it gets worse. And he's like, whoa, wait a sec. You can't do that. Mm-hmm. And then it gets worse and worse. And obviously there's like a cool, because there's the element of Denzel Washington's character, Alonzo, being morally gray, or you're not sure whether he's good or bad. But by the end, it's it's pretty straight up that he's just, he was a really corrupt cop. Um, and it didn't, I mean, you could argue he was doing some good, but from we, what we see in the movie, it seems like it was all talk. Because in the end, I mean, wait, are we talking spoilers? I'll say for this episode, I want to see if we can, I want to see if we can avoid like really heavy spoilers, but I'm going to say that spoilers might come up, but it may be important for us to talk about these movies out of order. So this is like sort of a soft spoiler warning. I don't know how spoilery we're going to be, but keep in mind that it may happen. I'll say that. There's a turning point in the movie, I'd say, at the end of the second act where he does something that's very obviously unforgivable and kind of runs against what we thought of his character the whole time. Because mm-hmm. at, at that point, at two thirds of the movie, we realize he's a he's just a bullshitter. Like he's a sweet talker. I think at first you're kind of like, oh, OK, I, I see he's like an evil that is necessary to deal with bigger evils. Yeah. Um, but in the end, he, I think he was just a douchebag. <laughs> like, that's that's all it really came down to. And I think that took away from the the core message of the movie. And then especially with, I think, the whole Ethan Hawke being saved by a very large coincidence kind of really clashes with the, the supposed realism tone of the movie, if that makes sense. So what seems like a very... It start what starts as a very kind of interesting look at police work turns into a very relatively cliche this guy's evil this guy's good corrupt system if that makes sense yeah and i guess like without giving too much away i don't know how much i like the ending it's not a bad single scene in isolation but it's so deflating and like a lot of the movie training day, it, it communicates its themes very clearly. And then as you, I think, I think you said this exactly. It doesn't really stick the landing. Yeah. I think that like at the very end, instead of like really driving home its point, And I don't know that there was a great way to drive home its point, but at the very end, instead of doing that, it's sort of like engineers a situation where the characters that we want to be able to go back to their regular lives do, and the characters that we want to get justice do, sort of. Not really, but like film justice. Yeah, it's kind of open-ended, I guess, with how it ends. Like, you don't know what happens, but I think there's a general assumption that Ethan Hawke moves on and doesn't do detective work, but he becomes a good cop and lives a good life. Yeah. So 
and like again, I I was happy to see that ending because again, Denzel Washington was such a huge douchebag the whole time that like I couldn't stand him. So, the, but the, like that's not the way the movie felt initially. You know, I I'd, I'd say I mean it's a good thing we're not comparing him to Dennis Villeneuve and Sicario because Sicario is a very very similar movie, um, where you have Emily Blunt's character is. She's not a rookie, but she's a relative rookie when it comes to working with the CIA, I think it is, right? Isn't it um, the DEA? It oh, could D- be the it CIA. might be I DEA. Could, I can't remember for I, sure. I'm trying to remember because I, I remember them saying that they needed they needed Emily Blunt, who was part of the FBI, because they needed uh or maybe she was part of the DEA. I don't know. They needed they needed they couldn't operate on American soil without a consultant from the FBI or something. Gotcha. Um, but that movie is a lot of Emily Blunt committing to something and then slowly realizing that these people are evil. But that movie is so much more because it does it in a much more subtle way. Mm-hmm. And it also ends on a much more interesting note of like, geez, I can't remember any of the characters, but names. Oh, no, but, but Benicio. Benicio. Yeah. El Toro, right? Is that yes. Name? Yeah. Okay. He, he like, we find out more and more about his character. But, and the truth is, I think he is what Denzel Washington was kind of being written as at first, where he's like, he's a scary character. He has a lot of power. He abuses people, but they add that emotional layer of like his family was killed. He wants revenge. And also he's insanely good at his job, you mm-hmm. know, and whether he has to hurt people along the way to finish that job, he will do. And that kind of resolves in that, that conf- internal conflict where at the end of the movie, you're like, well, that guy's an asshole, but also I can totally see, why he is the way he is and why he believes he has to do what he has to do. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, Emily Blunt, like the character literally thinks that, you know, like she, there's that ending scene where she wants to shoot him, but she can't do it because she's like, I, I don't know what I want to do here. You know, whereas in this movie you have, instead of Emily Blunt considering whether or not it's the right thing to shoot the the person, Ethan Hawke walks in, like walks into a neighborhood with his gun out, shoot, gets into a shootout in front of Denzel Washington's family, and then jumps onto his car. <laughs> it's, the, it's a lot less subtle, you know. Yeah, so. he comes into he comes into a neighborhood and like walks into a guy's house in order to commit armed assault, and the entire neighborhood is like, "No, that's the right call, though," and they're right yeah. too. And like, it makes sense because it's like there's that setup of like the neighborhood doesn't like the cop. But it's like, is it as interesting? Does it kind of defeat all the themes of the, the movie was initially setting up? Yeah, it kind of does. Because it, mm-hmm. it, it goes from morally ambiguous to a good versus evil conflict. Yeah. Which isn't a bad, like, it's not a terrible thing. It's just like, I wouldn't say the movie is up there. You know, it's still a good movie. Mm-hmm. But yeah. By contrast, uh, Monsters, Inc. When was the last time you saw Monsters, Inc.? I'm actually curious. Uh, I want to say it was like last last year. I've been, I've been trying to watch a lot of the animated movies, uh, Disney animated movies, because I read like the Disney biography recently. So but yeah, Mo- Monsters, Inc. is, I mean, Monsters, Inc. is also very good versus evil, but like, it's an animated movie, like, and also there's more, there's more to it, like, because it's not just the good versus evil conflict. There's a very, the relationships are a lot more interesting, like the mm-hmm. cast is more interesting, like it's not, Training Day, the whole point was is Denzel Washington's character, you know, evil or not, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas Monsters, Inc., it's like, yeah, like, the theme is, like, you know, corporation, bad, 
and they don't care about people, but there's also like, you know, like Mike and Sully are very, a very, have insanely good chemistry and they're a very good pair. And I would also say that like training day, sort of the, the main relationship in training day is between Denzel Washington and Ethan Hawke. Where, and obviously in Monsters, Inc., the main relationship is between Mike and Sully. But, like, in Training Day, there aren't really any other relationships. There's interesting characters that come up here and there, but they're, Mm -hmm. like, side characters for a few scenes. Where in Monsters, Inc., as interesting a relationship, like, the relationship between Mike and Sully is the one at the core, the one that has to be the most interesting but the relationship between Sully and Mr. Waternoose and the relationship between Sully and Randall, both of those are almost as interesting as the core relationship between Mike and Sully. And like mm-hmm. w- also well-realized, like Randall is a good villain, as is Mr. Waternoose, because yeah. they have very clear and well-defined relationships with the heroes. Like, Mr. Waternoose is revealed as a villain, spoilers, I guess, but when he's revealed not just as a villain, but as a villain specifically against Sully, it's a big deal for him because Mm. Sully is, like, his favorite person, and he doesn't ever want to go against Sully because he's the best worker he's ever had and also a good friend. Yeah, there's a there's a much more of a a connection to break if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Because yeah, like I guess that was like Sully's mentor, you know, and like uh, essentially father figure in the movie, I guess. Whereas in Training Day, it's like Ethan Hawke never likes Denzel Washington's character. <laughs> like he never likes Alonzo. Ethan Hawke both learns to like Alonzo and then unlearns that real quick over the yeah. course of the movie, which again mm-hmm. is is the point of that movie. So yeah, like, it's not bad, but also it makes it, it makes it so that that relationship, there's no time for other relationships because that relationship has so much growing and ungrowing. It has to do in one movie. Yeah, of course. Well, yeah, you could, you could say that the, yeah, the water new Sully arc is very, very, very similar to the training day arc. But again, like you said, like Mr. Waternoose is like, he's not even, you, you'd almost, you couldn't even say he's almost like the main villain. Like you could say like, what's his name? The Salamander's like the actual Randall. like man, and Randall's the main antagonist that we see a lot, right? Mm-hmm. And actually does a lot of the stuff. Whereas Mr. Waternoose is like the twist, the twist villain. Yeah. Um, so like the, the movie in Monsters, Inc. does not hinge on the relationship between Mr. Waternoose and Sully being believable, but it's still really, really good and interesting, mm-hmm. right? So it, it's like, it's just taking, like, it perfects, I think it does the training day arc better, but also that's just one part of a much larger story. And I mean, that's why Pixar was so amazing at the at the time is that they could they could tell these insanely complicated stories while also, I mean, the, the world in Monsters, Inc. is absolutely amazing just to look at too, like visually, and uh, like, it's, it's just very interesting, you know, whereas I'd say the training, I mean, training day is something we've seen before. And, you know, not not that that's a bad thing, but it's just show like Monsters, Inc. is a much it can do what training day does, but it's also a much more creative movie on all cylinders. Mm-hmm. I think um, I having rewatched Monsters, Inc. literally yesterday, uh, I think 22 years to the day since it came out, it holds up remarkably well. I think it's just uh, 
Um, in terms of in terms of the cinematography between both movies, I think like Monsters Inc. is lit crazy well. Like I don't even fully understand how it looks that good because it looks it does look like old CG. Like if this if Monsters Inc. were made today, it would look different. The art direction would be the same, but it would look very different. It would look more slick. It would look like well, PS5 graphics. Monsters University. Well, not yeah. I guess it's not current, but yeah. Yeah, and like if looking back on it, it looks like that old CG, but it's lit so well that it doesn't really look like it's aged. Where yeah. with Training Day, Training Day I actually like for different reasons the look of it. It looks very grimy in a way that there aren't too many new directors doing this same kind of look. It's got a similar like color grading and lighting and st- and all of that to Michael Bay movies, for example. Like it looks very, it's very LA grime the way that like Michael Bay and actually David Ayer do really well. And was, it was kind of like the grunge to, uh, this is a weird way to describe it, but it's like, a, it's like the grunge to like 90s actions glam rock. Like not that speed yeah. is not that speed is glamorous at all, but if you take speed and you make it a little dirtier, you get the look of Training Day. Yeah, well, there. I think it's very early two thousands. Like the, I think back then there was a. Were they shooting a? They probably shot a film at the time. Like that. That wasn't too long after. I would assume so. Made. Yeah, there's just like this unprofessional. Yeah, grimy look to it. I don't know what to say. Like the colors are murky, like the color grading. It's just kind of like gross to look at, if that makes sense. Um, whereas a lot of movies now that I mean, just I think even just shooting everything in digital, everything looks very polished all the time. And I think a way some directors combat that is they'll shoot a lot of stuff with extra shaky cam, you know, just to give it that that extra edge, you know, if that makes sense, because the movie doesn't look that way. But like, I don't I don't know if I want to say it aged poorly, because I still don't really love the look of the movie. But also like it does fit the tone and style of the movie. Because I'd also say the writing feels very 2000s as well. <laughs> like, I don't know how to say it, but it just does. It maybe feels dated almost in the same way of Monsters, Inc. Just like, like it, it's obviously very different visually. But I would say mm-hmm. that like both of those movies look very early 2000s in that if someone made Training Day today or if someone made Monsters, Inc. today, they would look very different. They're of their time, but it's not like they really aged poorly as much as just they wouldn't be made the same today. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, I'd say both scripts are good enough that they don't like you can you can watch them now and not be like cringing or whatever. Like they're both pretty solid scripts. Mm-hmm. Monsters Inc. is an amazing script. Sorry, I just want to point that out. Monsters Inc. has like a really, really good script. I mean, this is like a potentially very tiny point. It's not going to come up in more conversation, I would say. But like, I was a little surprised by how few slurs are in Training Day that are no longer okay to say. Like the only slurs in Training Day were already not cool to say at the time. There's none that have become worse, which is weird. Normally, like those are the movies where you expect all of those things. And you look back on them and you're like, yeah, yeah, okay, I get it, but I would not have said that, not today. <laughs> yeah, I remember watching, like, The Hangover, and they use a lot of slurs you are not <laughs> supposed to use at all anymore. 
and they use it quite blatantly. So it's it's really interesting to like that. Like the Hangover feels. I'd still say it's an amazing movie, but when the dialogue is very very dated, whereas mm-hmm. yeah, the Training Day like dialogue wise, like it it seems other than like just the way they talk. I don't want to say it sometimes. It just feels like two thousands, but maybe it's just the way it's shot too. I don't know, but. So you know, um, to the to the people that wrote the screenplays for this, David for for Training Day, David Ayer, and for Monsters Inc., uh, Andrew Stanton and Daniel Gerson, good job not using slurs. Yeah, I was I, when you first said it, I thought you're gonna be like, I was surprised how few slurs Monsters Inc. had. <laughs> Looking back, yeah, no, they I think they're both they're both really good. I, Training Day's script actually reminded me a lot. It felt very inspired by early. I mean, well, I won't say early Tarantino. It's just like all Tarantino, uh, especially at the start. You know, I thought the dialogue was very fun and quick paced and it didn't necessarily like I, I like I like. Well, one aspect I like about Tarantino scripts is like you can have a conversation that doesn't really have anything to do with the movie, but it sets up the characters. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like Reservoir yeah. Dogs has an entire conversation right at the beginning just about tipping which yeah. doesn't actually have anything to do with the rest of the movie, but it immediately, like, based on your, as a viewer, perceptions of what tipping culture is, it immediately sets out, you like this character, you don't like this character, and this character is a piece of shit, but he, like, tries and rationalizes it, which may yeah. or may not be a good thing either. Yeah, there's a... Uh... Like the, the dialogue feels very natural and it's patient. Mm-hmm. Whereas like I feel like a lot of movies when they when they dialogue they have to be well I guess I don't want Tarantino is setting stuff up when he does the dialogue. No, he but for sure is. It's important. It's an important scene. It's just not like the fact that one character doesn't believe in tipping isn't the reason that he dies later on. Yeah, it's like it establishes his character. You don't want to remove that scene, but it technically yeah. doesn't have any bearing on the plot specifically. Yeah, I'd I'd say the dialogue is so natural and odd in a way that it distracts from the fact that it is setting something up. Yeah, I think Um, what's really cool about Tarantino movies is exactly what you're saying, is like almost every Tarantino movie has some scene where two characters talk about movies and mm -hmm. their opinions on movies and the way that they talk about movies set them up as characters. Yeah. Um, and I think that, like, again, the the first couple scenes of this movie did that very well. Again, I think later in the movie it got a lot less subtle and stuff. Mm-hmm. But, and I, I wish they, I guess I wish they kept that up. Um, you know, whereas in Monsters, Inc., I mean, I don't, I don't even know how to just, like, the, the Mike Sully, just like you, the way they interact, like, we don't get too many references to their past. I think they say they've known each other since elementary school, right? Which is... It, the canon is there's issues in the canon because in Monsters <laughs> University they meet in university, but like you don't see many references. They're not talking about like oh remember that time. But in Monsters Inc. it's like just the way they interact. You can tell these guys have been friends their entire lives. Mm-hmm. They're they act like they act like siblings. They act like well I guess they're they're roommates right. So it's just like there's a lot. The, the dialogue is just so rich and. Um, you just really, it's its very efficient in getting a sense of it, of their I think, like, the way that the dialogue is directed in these movies, Training Day 
has space and like specifically makes space to have very naturalistic dialogue, especially at the beginning. Like you have that whole conversation where Ethan Hawke and Denzel and Denzel Washington are just talking about Ethan Hawke's wife. And like the way that that conversation plays out is exactly how two people who have just met would like Mm -hmm. talk about one person's wife and, you know, exactly how uncomfortable that ends up being. Where in Monsters, Inc., if you think of the dialogue there, basically every line of dialogue is doing something. And again, I don't necessarily mean it's doing something towards the plot sometimes, but like every line of dialogue is either specifically setting up some aspect of a character or it is a joke because there's not that much space to work with in Monsters, Inc. And uh, a fully CG movie is very expensive. So, like, (laughs) it's a very tight script. There's no room for anything to just be, like, there's no, there isn't that much room for naturalistic dialogue. It still feels great. Like, it's a really well-executed, it's got really well-executed dialogue, but it does, it can't, there's no room for character interactions of the same kind as, like, Ethan Hawke and Denzel Washington talking Mm -hmm. about Ethan Hawke's wife. Yeah, I'm sure, like, you know, John Goodman's a comedic actor in some ways, and so is what's his, what's Billy Crystal. Name? He's Billy, Billy Crystal. Yeah, I think <laughs> is like he might be more well known as a stand-up than as a yeah. an actor, or at least so, for a certain t- part of his career. But I think I think for these movies they'll storyboard it and then like like because I mean they did the same thing with Robin Williams where there's tons of improv for his performance, but they probably I think they might let them riff sometimes. But there is like you said there is a much more of a like this scene can only be this long or else the budget's going to inflate and stuff like that. So I, they, I know that they probably relatively stick to the script. Yeah. And... I mean, they keep the good stuff. So even when they're like, I don't know if this is what Antoine Fuqua is specifically doing, but like in a Quentin Tarantino movie. Okay. Again, I don't know if this is what Quentin Tarantino is doing, but the, it feels like there's room to riff for just like Steve Buscemi to talk about tipping. And I don't know how much of that is in the script based on what I think I know about Quentin Tarantino, probably all of it. But like, if that was just Steve Buscemi, like improvising and talking about tipping and like what he thinks his character would think that would make sense. If John Goodman wanted to do the same thing in Monsters, Inc., every line of that better be a joke because they don't have time. Yeah, it's they got to keep the movie short. It has to be concise. And also Pixar is the way they work is, I don't want to say it's directed by committee, but there's a very communal process of making mm-hmm. those movies. You know, Pete Docter became a director because he was part of that initial creative team in making Toy Story and Bugs Life. And Toy Story 2, I think, came the year before. So like he, he's, it's kind of like Marvel where he is, it's not solely his vision. It is the vision of the studio and he kind of helps fulfill that vision. So you're not going to get these art. Like I'd say, I'd say, like the Tarantino conversation style is very Tarantino. And that's not yeah. something Pixar wants representing its brand, if that makes sense. They The movies have to be relatively similar in the type of humor, the pacing. But I, I think what Monsters, Inc. and Pixar does so well is that even though the, the dialogue is efficient, it doesn't feel it doesn't feel efficient because I think part of it is that, again, like the chemistry between Mike and Sully is so natural and all the other characters and also a lot of it a lot of the dialogue is just kind of expanding the world 
Um, but the thing is, we're we're interested in understanding how the the world works, this monster world, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, so, like, we're not, I I wouldn't say it's like when I'm watching the movie, I'm not thinking like, oh, they're just this is efficiently explaining what's happening. It's not expositional dialogue. It's expo expositional dialogue done in a very natural way. That yeah. Makes sense. And on the note of it being by committee, I don't think like I think what you're what you said is really apt. But also, like, to compare this to Marvel, this is like if Monsters, Inc. Or this is like if if a Marvel movie was directed by Kevin Feige. Like, mm. on the one hand, yes, it's there's very much a creative committee behind this that's making sure this movie turns out the way they want it to. But the person in charge of the movie is also one of the most important people in that committee, in this case. Yeah, for sure. This, Yeah, he's not... I, yeah, he's not a Marvel, hired gun. Yeah, Marvel's hiring like these directors that get no say in their movies. Um, Pete Doctor, well, I don't know what he how he was doing at the time, but he seems to have been yeah a very integral in Pixar's rise. So I, I doubt he was just being told what to do. Like I just meant more like I think I'm pretty sure like every scene and every moment in those movies they gather like their best directors and producers and they watch it together. And they mm -hmm. like they analyze that thing to death and be like, just to make sure everything flows really well, right? Because like you said, like as an animation, especially at the time when Pixar was such a young studio, they couldn't afford to mess up creatively, you know, or they couldn't mm -hmm. afford to have the audience bored for a second. They were just like, this has to be perfect, you know, and they were doing that. So like it, it was a good process. Yeah, um, and it worked very well. But yeah, you're not you're not gonna get like. Ooh, this is a Pete Doctor moment. You know, like he's not that type of director. And that's the point. I'm not complaining. It's just like, but you you do say this is a Pixar moment, and Pete Doctor represents the Pixar brand. Yeah. I think this will be potentially really interesting a few a few episodes down the line because Pixar being a young studio, Pete Doctor is not the only Pixar director we've got in our bracket. Oh, perfect. We've talked a little bit about the similarities and differences between these movies, uh, but specifically, I wanted to get a little—I wanted to drill down a little bit into the theme of kind of why I picked these two movies. I thought that what a really interesting comparison between these is is, as we've already brought up, the institutional corruption that's at the core of this. Obviously, that is the entire theme of Training Day. It is about corrupt cops, mm -hmm. and what I thought was interesting is Monsters Inc kind of similarly like not exactly the same but if you look at monsters inc it's about an organization that is wrong in what they're doing and that wrongness of what they're doing is enforced from the top down so it's a corrupt institution as well and i think yeah. that the way that these two that both of these movies portray that corruption is not super similar but it's portraying a similar thing in different and really interesting ways when you were watching these movies or when you were preparing for this episode did you sort of like see any of those parallels oh yeah for sure well i i think the with monsters inc it's you could obviously it's a it's a metaphor for capitalism it's a commentary on capitalism but you could also argue that like there's such a big presence that it's it's because you know you have the the germ agents, the human contamination agents. You could also argue that it's kind of represented as a government facility, mm -hmm. um, even though on the surface it's represented as a literally monsters incorporated. So like you could argue that, but yeah, there's the top down themes of like 
but basically it's the top saying this doesn't make sense or is saying one thing and then someone realizes like wait this literally makes no sense um mm -hmm. whereas i think in monsters inc though it's actually like relatively more morally gray <laughs> like oddly enough even though but it's like such a you know it's supposed to be a usually animated movies are very good versus evil but like in monsters inc you could argue that mr water news there was no knowledge of laughter being possible to power uh, companies, right? The civilization. So you could argue that like, oh, like he didn't know and that he wanted, because at, at the time, the only way they could have power and to live is is to scare children. And he didn't know that. And he was, I guess at the time, he was just too stubborn to listen to Sully because he also seems to hate children. Um, yeah. Yeah. Whereas I don't, maybe there's some trauma for him. <laughs> <laughs> that we need to get a prequel for Monsters Inc. for one day, but there, Monsters yeah, there is Inc. that the water news years, <laughs> yeah, and the, like there is that element. And also, same thing with Randall, where you know, like everyone understands what it's like to to be number, like feel like they're number two and mm -hmm. be underappreciated. You know, like you could you could say Randall was like the if Water News was like the dad figure, then then Randall was like the forgotten. He's like the Loki, basically, of Monsters, Inc., where he's the child that's underappreciated, but will do anything to get the attention he wants slash kind of deserves, I guess. Mm -hmm. And you kind of see that at the start when they set up, you know, Sully. I mean, Sully's not a, a jerk at the start, but he is like, I'm, I'm going to use a high school comparison, but you could tell he's like the popular kid in the high school, you know. Yeah, at, at work, and essentially. like... He's not a jerk about it, but he does know that he's the popular kid. Yeah, and he's he brags about it, essentially. He's, yeah. he's a very proud person, and I think everyone can relate to that, too. And, you know, it's not Sully isn't good or bad. It's just, like, the way he is, you know? Mm -hmm. And that's important, too, because it does give him a character arc of going from not, compare, like, not caring about kids and being cocky to, like, you know, being more of a father figure and understanding... And also, like, willing to step down from his, like, you know, being the most popular guy and letting basically Mike take his spot and being kind of the behind-the-scenes guy at the end, you know? Yeah, so. it's a really interesting sort of inversion over the course of the... I think it's kind of cool how Mike and Sully are partners and Mike's role in his partnership with Sully is almost by definition, like, an extremely number two role because he's the support guy. But, yeah. like, not only does he not care about that, but when the skill sets that are required are different by the end, Sully just, like, backs up and lets Mike be number one with so little fanfare that it's not even a moment. It's yeah. just Mike appears in a room and we take that for granted. That's just what's happening now. Yeah. Because he's but, the funny one. Yeah. And I, I think that works, too. Just, like, Mike was never... I guess Randall takes the role of being the jealous... Uh, friend because I, I think in a lot of movies you would get like Mike might be the jealous friend you know mm -hmm. um, but in this case the only the only tension was that Mike was like Mike just wanted things to be normal you know which is like yeah. really understandable too and he just and he wanted to make sure he was still friends with Sully meanwhile Sully was like like doing everything he could to change things while unfortunately also ruining Mike's life <laughs> with his girlfriend troubles and stuff but I think that's why, like, we like. I think I like Mike's, in my opinion, like kind of the heart of the movie for sure. And I think that's why it works really well too, is because uh, you know we really care about his character. And at the end, when he wins, 
Sully gets wins, but then also Mike gets a huge win. He doesn't lose everything because uh, he gets to be the star, you know? And then he was mm-hmm. never mad about not being the star too, which I think also yeah. works. I think if he was if he was being bitter to Sully about not being the one, then that would be kind of like, eh, but um, like yeah. that scene, that scene where they're seeing the ad and Mike's face is blocked out by the logo and he doesn't even care that he's blocked out. He's just happy he's on TV. You mm-hmm. know, like his legs are on TV. It's just like, it's just such a cute moment. And I, I love like the little things like that. And it helps. I think it helps keep the movie fresh and fun, even though their friendship gets very, uh, you know, frayed. I think what I really like, what really resonates with me is it makes their friendship very separate from their business relationship. Although mm-hmm. both are important. It's mm-hmm. like Mike never feels like he's second fiddle to Sully because uh, it doesn't matter when Sully wins, he wins because they're partners. And then, yeah. you know, in their friendship, they have their own issues, but those have nothing to do with what they do in work or in public or like, you know, public facing at all. Yeah. Yeah. And that, again, like you, you could have, that's why you could have like the themes of corporations being evil, not work, but you would still have a great movie there. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Even though, uh, like, I guess we're kind of sidetracked from the themes of, well, I just realized that. But yeah, like, it's, I think, I think they tackle it very well. And they use such a beautiful metaphor of doing it through the, you know, the scaring of children. I think that that relationship, that buddy relationship between them is, is like a very important parallel to Training Day, though, because in Training Day, the only relationship we really have is between Ethan Hawke and Denzel Washington. But that relationship is explicitly tied to their work. There is no relationship between them outside of it. And there couldn't be. There is no movie outside of that relationship. Yeah. But that means that when that relationship breaks down, that relationship the the buddy cop dynamic i'm calling it buddy cop but really it's just the relationship between those two that dynamic because it is so tied to their work it's also specifically tied to this institutional corruption that the movie is showing because when the movie shows systemic corruption or corrupt cops or like corruption within the police system it shows that through and in relationship to the relationship between Ethan Hawke and Denzel Washington. When Monsters, Inc. shows systemic corruption, it's almost an aside. Like, it has nothing to do with the core relationship of the movie. It barely has to do with the plot, just that it is actually an important element that's not explored as deeply as it could be because uh, it's not the heart of the movie, but it is still, like, an important plot element. Where, like, with Training Day, it is the meat of the movie. Yeah. I I think Training Day would have worked better, like, if you... I mean, (laughs) they were kind of screwed by the title being Training Day, where they couldn't... It's like Five Nights at Freddy's. It had to be Five Nights at Freddy's. And this is, like, Training Day, so it had to be a training day. Like, the first day of training, I guess. Which, I feel like that isn't actually that bad. But, like, I think if they were able to give us a chance for them to, to have a bonding moment like outside of work or, you know, maybe he goes home to his wife like after a shift and he's like, oh man, like, I don't know what I'm doing. And we get to see more of his internal conflict of why he stays, you know, Mm -hmm. but in the movie, it's just so back to back that we never get a chance for Ethan Hawke's character to really reflect and be like, 
wait, so why does he want to do this? You know, why is he staying? Why is he being treated like shit and being okay with it? And we like we get hints at it where obviously he's like he wanted to help people and this was his dream from like I guess since being a child or something. But like that's mm-hmm. not enough. And it's he's saying it to Denzel Washington's Alonzo, who doesn't very obviously doesn't care about him that much. So we never get like much to work with. I will say that I think he did a good job later. Like Alonzo did trick me a couple times though, where he mm-hmm. the the lines where he was like like, oh, I understand, like, I was like you, you know, and like the part where they're in the house and uh, Ethan Hawke has a gun to his head and he talks everyone down and he's like, this is a good guy. Like, I understand him. I think he could be a leader, you know, I like, I bought into that, you know, so that's. Well, yeah, there's several times in training day where Denzel Washington, um, Alonzo, like, he he'll do something that's very obviously evil, but the way that he does it and the way that he rationalizes it afterwards, I'm like, well, okay, this is still clearly the bad guy, but you know, is, is he right when he makes himself the bad guy so he can catch bigger bad guys? And like, the answer is no, but there's plenty of times in that, in the movie where like Alonzo makes you question. There's, there's a reason Denzel Washington won an Academy Award for that portrayal. His entire character is manipulating what Ethan Hawke tells him in confidence and turning that into, no, 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 you should trust me and here's why, even though I'm not trustworthy. And he manages to do that to the audience too, I think. Like I'm watching it and there's a few times where even though, you know, even though I don't agree with him, I think about maybe like, is there some sense to what he's saying? Yeah. Yeah, well, I I mean, that's, I think a lot of that that is credit to his performance. Yeah. I just I wish the script was a little more subtle in yeah whether he was because by the time the third act rolls and you're like well this guy's like I'm never gonna trust anything this guy says, but also yeah. maybe that's the point you know like because that's you're in Ethan Hawke's head at that point where you're just like he was obviously very done with Denzel Washington uh, at the time as well so you know it's it's a tough it's a tough cookie to crack and case to crack in in that movie like i don't i'm not entirely sure like i would have liked it more if it was morally more morally gray because i like again i think sicario just did it better Mm -hmm. at least this movie really showcased denzel washington's acting skills because he had a lot of moments where he just really got to ham it up yeah um so that kind of makes it unique in a way but yeah i think the one thing that kind of interested me, because this is one thing I was specifically looking for when I was rewatching these movies, is the way that the is sort of what the final part of the movie says about the corruption that's present in each of these movies. In Monsters Inc., the core conflict as it relates to institutional corruption specifically in this movie ends up being that all of monster society is powered by screams, but it doesn't have to be because laughter is better. So at the very end of the movie, when they discover that and publicize that, it's a no-brainer that Monsters, Inc. becomes a laugh factory instead of a scream factory Hmm. because uh, it just makes more sense. So the moment that something better comes along, the entire system is reformed in days Hmm. because, like, the system is corrupt because no one knows something better. And the people that might know something better are evil. Like, I don't think Waternoose knows better, but if he did, 
I, I mean, you, it wouldn't be surprising to me to learn that he does in fact know better. Yeah. And yeah. he's just hiding it because he's evil and wants the money. Where like in training day, at the very end, you know, we've had our shootout with Alonzo. Alonzo has gotten what's coming to him. And then in the last scene, Alonzo dies. And what does this say about corruption? That it's it doesn't matter because it's still there. The LAPD mm-hmm. is still bad. And mm-hmm. I don't want the LAPD to be reformed at the end of this movie because the LAPD is a real institution. Like, if they're reformed <laughs> at the end of training day, they better be reformed at the end of that, yeah, at the yeah. end of training day in real life too. Like, it doesn't have a solution, which I think makes it, I mean, it makes it a little more frustrating in that regard, not necessarily a bad thing, but it's like, it's a very bleak outlook because it sort of says that there's this there's this corruption within the system that a good cop coming into the system, Ethan Hawke, the only thing that can happen is he can either stay within the system and refuse to like acknowledge the bad parts, leave the system entirely, or be corrupted by the system. Where yeah. in Monsters Inc., it's like, you know, the moment that there is actually a good thing people will move over to that because it makes more sense. So like the monsters Inc is a very hopeful movie basically mm-hmm. where training day is extremely bleak about the same sus- subject. Yeah. You could, you could say that monsters Inc just because it's a fabricated universe. They, they can create an easy way out. You know, like yeah. when you think about it, it's kind of, it's kind of like, it feels a little like, it's like not only can laughter replace scares, but also it's way, way, way more efficient. Like that, it feels like an easy way out, but also like, I don't want to see a morally conflicted Sully at the end of the movie. No, for sure. Where monster society is powerless and starving because they have to, they've they've learned to uh, doubt whether they should scare children or not. Because that's not, I mean, that's not the movie it sets up, right? Yeah, I would be very interested in a movie where the only like the only power for monsters is screams. And at the end, they learn to get along with humans, but they still need the screams. Like, I think that's an interesting that would be an interesting conflict. But it's also not it's also not the movie. Yeah. Do I want to see that in Monsters Inc? Not really. No. (laughs) No. But and then also you could argue, though, that like I think Monsters Inc aged very well because it feels like like now you could look at it as like a a climate crisis metaphor where you know in a lot of cases now we have renewable energies being much cheaper than oil and gasoline mm-hmm. on replacing things but we still have the entire like oil and gas companies trying to hide hide proof and stuff like that just to keep the profit margin i mean this came out the same year as like an inconvenient truth so i doubt it was inspired by that it, I mean, at one point, Waterdeuce does say energy crisis. So I don't know yeah. if it's inspired by that, but like, <laughs> it seems there's, very... there's clearly like that motif that yeah. exists. Like if it was made now, it might be less than subtle just because of how much in the discourse it is now. But I still think it works. Whereas like, I feel like a movie now, like in like the latest Disney movies, like, you know, Zootopia or like Elemental, it's like very obviously about race you know (laughs) and like i think that's what makes it better than training days in some ways is it's a lot more subtle with the messaging you drew the connection to climate change right there and i had not drawn that it makes sense but i think it's like i mean monsters inc has so much going for it that like you actually can interpret it in several different ways. I like you talking you talking about climate change in it, but I, I hadn't even thought about that. And it was already 
a very like deep and meaningful movie for me. Like I was yeah, already yeah. reading a bunch of stuff into it that was not that specifically where I think yeah. like if you watch elemental and you get anything other, anything other than this is about race out of it. I don't know if you actually watch the movie. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. Yeah. So I think that's, that also helps at age where you can theoretically attach so many different things about society and metaphors to the conflict between water nuisance and, and Sully uh, whereas training day is it's very obvious what it's about. <laughs> and like, yeah. Again, like I'd, I'd say training day is the one that should have been way more subtle with its messaging because it's the much supposedly more mature, gritty, realistic movie. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's, you know, that scene the, that really throws it away. I mean, I'm happy Ethan Hawke doesn't die, but there's the scene where, you realize that, oh, Ethan Hawke saved the cousin of the guy that's about to kill him. So the guy, and the guy finds her wallet on him. So then he spares him because coincidentally, the guys that Denzel Washington hired to kill Ethan Hawke are also the ones whose cousin he saved earlier in the movie. Mm -hmm. Uh, Which I like the very obvious theming there is that good cops will get paid back through like somehow you know like good deeds good deeds will come come back to you but it's just such a huge coincidence and it's just so obvious that i think it really conflicts with the tone of the movie you know i guess like that's one of the things that really kind of jumps out at me is as a main difference between these two movies is in training day ethan hawk is just a good cop where in monsters inc randall is a bad guy but like sully is no morally better or worse than the guy whose name I forget, but who keeps like accidentally getting a sock on him. Like (laughs) he's, they're equally morally good. Like there's nothing special about them other than Sully has a uh, plot line, which will eventually lead him to reform the organization. But like, he's not a good monster in a bad organization. The entire organization is like, like it has one or two bad people at the top mm-hmm. where with, with training day, Ethan Hawke is the only good cop in that situation. Yeah. Well, yeah, you could, I mean, you could even argue Sully, like if Sully was number two and Randall was number one, Sully would be just like Randall, you know, like maybe, well, maybe not just like Randall, but you could argue that. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. Uh, whereas in training day, it's just like, like Denzel Washington, like, it's just progressively he gets worse and worse, you know, and, mm-hmm. and then you just see Ethan Hawke reacting to it. And it's like, there's no, like, again, there's a subtlety in Denzel Washington's performance, I say, but script wise, if you're just reading it, you'd be like, well, this guy seems like an asshole. Like, that's it. You know, there's no redeeming moments either where you actually see Alonzo uh, do something good for someone, you know, mm-hmm. there's, there really isn't any moment like that. He says it, he says it a lot. And that's where the trick comes in. But does he do it? Like, we never see that. And I think that's what kind of ruins the the immersion of it, you know? And the same thing with Ethan Hawke. Ethan Hawke's character never really does anything bad, like you said. He's peer pressured into everything bad. Mm-hmm. Where, again, like, Sully was, wasn't the greatest character at the start. And Randall and Ms. Water, Water News were kind of just doing their job. Even though you could argue that they were becoming pretty evil by the end, too. Yeah, I mean, I specifically, <laughs> I, I specifically pointed to like one of the other monsters because one of the other monsters would be the same in the system, and he's just he's not like an explicitly bad guy. Randall 
sure, Randall is just kind of an asshole. And Waternoose, yeah. as well, is Waternoose. just an asshole. <laughs> so, you know, you can make special arguments for them, but any other monster is just, like, the same as Sully, yeah. at least They're on a moral level. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I get that. So... so. Uh, before we wrap up here, I want to ask you, I want to ask you to do one thing beforehand, which is, this is a showdown between directors. And we've talked about a lot of the whole aspects of the movies, uh, of each of these movies. So I want to just sort of pair that out a bit. What would you say is the biggest strength of Antoine Fuqua's directing in Training Day? Oh, geez. I say just kind of the realness of it. Like we said earlier, there's a grimy look to it. I'd say a lot of the dialogue feels very like not like natural. You know, it, it really does kind of feel like you're you're just you're in Ethan Hawke's eyes you're just along for the day. Yeah, I don't know. I, I'd say that the directing style knows what it's the movie is supposed to be for. I'd say I'd say it's mostly the script that fails it in this case. And I think that to sort of actually build on what you just said about the script, even uh, I think that. To me, the biggest strength of Training Day is in the performances. And I bring that up in relation to Antoine Fuqua as a director, because I think no one else could fill the shoes of Denzel Washington in this movie. But more than that, like he gets an astounding performance out of Denzel Washington that I don't think... like if you gave this script to Denzel Washington and put him alone on a stage with no, with no one else around him it would be fine, but he wouldn't give you the same performance. Like Antoine yeah. Fuqua really draws that out of him in, in a really special way that makes me like really, that whole performance sticks with me so much after this movie. And I think that as much as that is Denzel Washington doing a good job, Antoine Fuqua brought that out of him in a really yeah. effective way. Yeah, for sure. I agree. Um, and you can see why he's worked with Denzel so many times <laughs> since then. So, similar question. What would you say is, in terms of directing, the biggest strength of Pete Docter in Monsters, Inc.? I think, like, Pixar movies are tough because, again, they all they all just seem very similar tonally mm -hmm. um, and direct, directorial style-wise. But I, I'd say, like, with Pete Docter in Monsters, Inc., I'd say it's just, like, what sticks out to me most about Pixar is just the... The ability to balance the humor with the beautiful moments as well like the really mm -hmm. christine like everything on this in this movie is working on all cylinders you got great chemistry between in the cast got great visual gags you got a great plot line you know cool set pieces like the i mean the door the the idea of the doors and like how they make the most of that idea like having that the climactic scene being the running between doors like in the factory is just so cool. But I, I guess the biggest thing I'd say for Pete Doctor is the amount of imagination that goes into it. And you can say that a lot about Pixar movies, but I mean, looking at Monsters, Inc., it's just, this really is a world he built, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, I, I know we're not supposed to compare it to other movies, but we can see he's very good at that. I, I would say as well, looking at, I looked briefly at the other movies that he's directed from Pixar. And I think that, I think that Pete Doctor has a really good handle on those emotional moments, especially like he does it a lot more explicitly in other movies, but in Monsters, Inc., the moments between Sully and Boo hit really, really hard. They hit so hard that like, 
I remember them. I've only seen Monsters, Inc. a couple of times. And, like, they are fully formed, like, they're fully formed scenes in my head that I didn't even need to rewatch the movie in order to, like, remember when Sully meets Boo for the first time, meets Boo for the last time. Like, those emotional moments hit really hard. And I think he's really good at driving those home and whether or not he's the one that wrote those moments, he like nails down. One of the things I said about this movie early on is that so much of it is just like quick one-liners and Mm -hmm. he knows exactly how not, how much to not do that to get the emotional response he needs from just about every scene. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I guess you could say that like, mm, like there's not like, Pixar obviously creates a great world a lot of the time, but a lot of it is kind of based in human society. I mean, I guess Monsters, Inc. is too, but, like, I don't want to say, but, like, Cars, it's literally, like, it's, like, you. there's, like, a human parallel for everything in Cars, but they're just Cars, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> there's not... It's it's kind of interesting, but there's not too much imagination there, whereas Monsters, the Monsters universe feels very of its own, even mm-hmm. though there's some obvious parallels. Like, you compare it more to Star Wars, where Star Wars... Obviously, there's tons of parallels to the real world, but it's its own thing, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and Monsters Inc. does that, and I feel like it. He does that the best in this in Monsters Inc. Personally, I think it's one of Pixar's best movies, and uh, you know, I, I I think they peaked very early, and they're lucky they found Pete Doctor because, uh, yeah, he really he really makes this movie work. So, last question I have for you. Based on their 2001 movies, Training Day and Monsters, Inc., Mm. which director of Antoine Fuqua or Pete Docter would you be more excited to see a second movie from? (laughs) Pete Docter. (laughs) All right, we got our first winner. (laughs) I want to know what you would say. Because there's only two of us, like, I don't ever want it to deadlock. So I uh, I, I want to ask you first so we can make our decision of a winner right there. That's but right. I think for me, it would also be Pete Doctor. I think that uh, as, as much as I do like Training Day, and I am curious to see more from Antoine Fuqua, even after having seen more from Antoine Fuqua and being generally not super impressed, uh, I think that Pete Doctor... He creates that um, he creates that world that you just mentioned that I really like. He's really he's got these big imaginative worlds. He's so good at creating these worlds that are so fantastical and yet rooted in very fundamentally relatable situations. Like I know a big way that people maybe just this is just my family, but like I know a big way that people used to talk about children's movies and especially in the context of Pixar is like, this is a kid's movie, but there's something for the parents there too. And I think that's very reductive as like a statement like that. But also like watching this as a child, I saw a lot of heart in this movie because I saw it in 2001 when it came out Mm -hmm. and I resonated a lot with me as a kid watching it now as a 30 year old, I still see a lot of my lived experience in this, like relationships with coworkers, with mentors, with girlfriends, like all of that stuff is in this movie still. Like this is a very, this is a very lived experience movie, despite being for kids four and up. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's uh, in my opinion, like 
it's very close to a perfect movie. I don't know what I would fix, so I, I might even call it a perfect movie. Because mm -hmm. I don't know what else, like, there's not no part of where I'm like, this doesn't, this doesn't work or anything, you know, so, yeah. All right. That's just the picture. So there's, there's the winner for our first, uh, for our first matchup. We had Antoine Fuqua versus Pete Doctor, and Antoine Fuqua has been eliminated in the first round. I, I will say the directors for the next round, but I'm not going to say the movies. In the next round, we are going to be talking about Denis Villeneuve and Lynn Ramsey. Are you excited, Pierre? Yes. I think I that gives us our... Is. I'm excited for Denis Villeneuve. Yeah, our, our first Canadian and, uh, well, and Lynn, Lynn Ramsey, who I, I would tell you what she's <laughs> directed, but Ramsey. you're you're going you're gonna to see what she directed next time, so... Perfect. Okay. Exciting stuff. For years I have envied You agree with it. Your grace and your charm. Everyone loves you, you know. Yes, I know, I know, I know. But I must admit it. The guy you always come through. Nothing if I didn't have you. You and me together. That's how it always should be. One without the other. Don't mean nothing to me. Nothing to me.